0: The rolling hills and rivers of Jiangxi's Xuanu County are picturesque, but this has long been one of the poorest places in China. That's why Mao Zedong came here for a month in 1930, almost two decades before taking power. He came to the county seat, Chengning, which was then a dusty little village of about 1,500 people. He wanted to understand the problems and aspirations of villagers and to see how the class system worked here. This guide is giving a tour of the rooms where Mao Zedong stayed, the iron-framed twin bed where he slept, the long plank table where he sat and talked with locals. The guide says Mao talked to farmers, merchants, local officials, an imperial scholar, even disaffected youth. He noted in colorful detail who felt oppressed by whom, how the classes interacted, how control of property was key to wealth and power. Assisting Mao was a 24-year-old local named Gu Bo, the grandson of landlords. His family was renowned for sending many scholars over the centuries to serve the emperor. But Gu Bo wanted change, says his grandnephew Gu Anjian, who I caught up with in his village home. He says Gu Bo thought the class system he'd benefited from was unfair so, once he joined the revolution, he burned down the house of his grandfather, the landlord. Gu Bo's brothers were revolutionaries, too. Four of them joined Mao on the long march. Three died. Gu Anjian is now a wizened 74-year-old, retired after 40 years of serving as local village chief. He sits at a round table in the kitchen of his village home with his brother and son and nephew, while the women in the family prepare a lunch. The Gu family shows what has and hasn't changed in China's class structure since Mao Zedong came here more than 80 years ago. The family used to have more than its share of imperial scholars, but today, none of the men here have gone beyond ninth grade. Mao tried to abolish capitalism, but the village chief's younger brother, Guan Jia, did foreign trade and steel. I ask what he thinks Gu would have thought of his grandnephew making a career in capitalism. (laughs) Guan Jia says, rather defensively, that it was a state-run trading company he worked for, at least at first. But in China, being connected to the state or the Communist Party doesn't mean you're not capitalist. More than 90 percent of China's richest people are party members, and state-owned enterprises control most of China's wealth – because the system is skewed to favor them over private businesses. The disgraced senior official, Bo Xilai, used the system to amass great wealth for his family and to take down rivals, seize their wealth, and sometimes execute them in the name of fighting crime and corruption. His wife stands accused of murdering a British businessman who reportedly helped the family transfer large sums overseas and threatened to talk if he wasn't paid more for his trouble. So forget about the national anthem, with its exhortation to arise, those who refuse to be slaves. These days, those who want to get rich join the party, and the party these days wants the rich to join it, so wealth stays concentrated in the hands of its members, who'll then have little incentive to change the system. And it seems to be working. The richest 75 members of China's legislature, the National People's Congress, have an average net worth of $1.2 billion each. The Gu family is not in those ranks. It may have sacrificed its sons for the revolution. Gu Bo died young, as well as his three brothers on the long march, but the family now lives a simple village life. The village chief's 36-year-old son, Gu Zisong, scoffs when I ask the family if they're proud that their relative worked with Mao to try to make China more egalitarian. If he says, pride? What pride? If there were any glory in it, we wouldn't live here. Guzi Song makes his living growing oranges, a line of work that has helped pull many farmers out of poverty since it caught on seven or eight years ago. You can see their profits in the new concrete and brick houses rising up in the village. Gu Song admits life here is better than when he was a kid, when the village consisted of mud brick houses with no electricity or indoor plumbing and dirt roads that turned to muck in the rain. Now the roads are good, and most homes have refrigerators, TVs, even the occasional computer, which allows people to see that their lives might have gotten better, but the elite in China are doing far better still. <laughs> At the goose kitchen table, family members include a former local official, a trader, and a farmer, a lot like the classes of people Mao talked to when he was here in 1930. So I can't help but ask, do you think there are class differences in China today? (laughs) (laughs) They seem surprised by the question. Gu Zisong, the orange farmer, says, No, today's China is different. There aren't any classes anymore. His cousin chimes in. Today, it's not exploitation. The people are rich. Actually, it's hard to answer this. It may be hard because Chinese, from their first days at school, learned that Mao abolished the class system. So they figure any inequalities that exist now must be something else. Another Gu has an easier time with the question. He's down the street, where he runs a kindergarten. Gu Yue is 34. He was a migrant worker for five years, in a sweater factory, in a city 250 miles away. He says he didn't really like the city. People looked down on migrant workers. Many workers were so underpaid and overworked that strikes and protests were common, even though independent trade unions in China are illegal. Gu says his boss was okay, but even in his factory as a migrant worker, you could only move up so far. The good jobs went to local people. So when he'd made a bit of money, he came back here and started a factory of his own. (laughs) Gu Yuexang says his factory, at its peak, employed more than 120 fellow villagers and produced 4 million sweaters a year, sold mostly to the United Arab Emirates and Hong Kong. The factory had to close last year when too many customers went too long without paying. Still, Gu yue Sheng is proud of having helped his fellow villagers get a leg up without having to go through the hardship and humiliation he endured as a migrant worker. His efforts have also pushed him nicely into China's middle class. It's a mobility villagers here didn't have at the time Mao visited, but with wages and expectations rising, Gu Yue doubts the next generation will find it as easy as it was for him if they're not educated. He says that's what the kindergarten is about to help kids from this village get a head start and learn to love learning. Gu Yuexiang says these kids will be growing up in an IT era, with almost half of China's population already online and an increasing number entering the middle class. Without a good education, he says, they don't have a chance. But, he says, a good education is far from enough. If these kids want to have a prosperous middle class life, you have to fight for your life. On this construction site, orange farmers lost the fight for their livelihoods and property developers with the right government contacts won. It's in Xuonu County's biggest town, Changning, the place where Mao stayed when it was just a village. Now, there are about 100,000 people here, and luxury apartment towers are rising like mushrooms beside a river where poor women still do laundry. In one of the upscale complexes, I find Huang Chuanfu, the general manager, talking to a contractor. The complex is just across the river from a fancy new government building that's lit up at night in gaudy, multicolor splendor. When I drop in unannounced, he's wary. He asks, Are you going to ask any political questions? We're a legal company. But he's happy to talk about his project. <laughs> He says he's got almost 700 apartments selling for almost $100,000 each, and he sold most of them. He'll be in profit when he sells 80% of them, and he's confident he will. I ask if that's optimistic, given that property prices are dropping in much of China and that Nu is officially ranked as one of China's poorest counties. No, he says, Almost every Xuanyu farmer has orange trees. They make good money from those and then move to town so their kids can get a good education. He says farmers account for about one-third of those who have bought apartments already, and he's betting that more will keep coming to town. Even if there's a temporary drop in property prices, he says, the trend is clear. China's economy will keep growing, and people's lives will only get better. The villagers who lost their orange groves here to developers aren't so sure. Luo Dingyuan is 66. He lives in a little courtyard house just up the hill from the new apartment complex. His family has lived here for generations. He says he used to have an acre of orange trees, which netted him a nice annual income. But then the government came and said they needed his land for development. It gave him $48,000. Not bad, given that most of the 30 million or so rural Chinese who have been turfed off their land in the name of development over the past dozen years got little or nothing. Even in this area, another group of villagers near here was moved by force, locals say, with some 500 police coming in to clear them. So, Luo Dingyuan could count himself lucky. He doesn't. He says the money might last 10 years, and then what? He only has a second-grade education. Farming is all he knows, and now he has no land left to farm. His five grown kids are off as migrant workers, but they barely make enough for themselves. And his government pension is laughably small, about $8 a month. Meanwhile, he sees luxury apartments he'll never be able to afford, rising where his orange grove used to be. It's not exactly what Mao had promised villagers here, about how the communist revolution would transform their lives and create an egalitarian society. Luo is old enough to remember when the Communist Party came to power, and actually, he says, it was never like that. He says the party officials always had the power. During the post-Great Leap Forward famine of the late 50s and early 60s, officials would stop villagers who tried to leave to forage for food, and many starved to death, while the officials had enough to eat. And now, I ask, what do you think of how this place is developing now? He says, it's hard to say. It's good for the city to grow, I guess. But the government takes our land, and the bosses of these projects pay them off and make the profits. It's not fair. We have no power, and we just have to accept our fate. Landlords, corrupt officials, underpaid workers, farmers on the short end of the stick. Sounds like the old class system, doesn't it? I ask. No, no, the law says now we don't have classes in China. At least not like before. For the world. I'm Mary Kay Magstad, Chuanyu County, Jiangxi, China.